And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. We are here with Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. That is Maggie. She is no longer a guest. We had a conversation. If you heard that on the last uh, episode, we were wrong before. Maggie is no longer a guest. She is now a co-host. So she has been promoted. Yay! Woo! Woo! It's a party! (laughs) Today we are looking at the second segment of Witches of New York, The Witches of New York, and we left off at page 136 last time. Today we are reading from 139 to, I think it's 239? Pretty 232. sure. 232. Yes. 52. 252? Yeah. Numbers. I know. They're tricky. <laughs> I'm an English major. <laughs> Okay, and Maggie wrote out a lovely summary for this segment to give us all a rundown on what happens. So this part essentially has kind of like four key plot points that we need to be thinking about. So the first thing that happens that we need to be aware of is that we see the beginnings of this relationship between Adelaide and Brody. It's the beginnings of a love interest. It's the very, very, very beginnings of a business scheme that uh, we see delved into later in the book. And it's very exciting for her. The second thing we see is Eleanor's personal tensions really develop further as she meets with her old flame, Lucy. They're trying to solve a delicate problem, shall we say, which we'll talk about later in this section. But we really see kind of more about how Eleanor feels about herself and about this old relationship and how this old relationship is like really holding her back in her personal life. The third is that we really see Beatrice's coming of age story develop. She's tapping into her personal magic. She's learning more about magic and she receives a lot of validation from Madame St. Clair's ghost about the fact that like she's the chosen one essentially. Like she's not just a witch, she is the witch. And then lastly, we see uh, the villainous plot begin to develop. We see our antagonist, the Reverend, do some really, really shady things, including kidnapping a very, very young girl who was uh, practicing what he felt was like occult things in public. We don't know what's going to happen to her yet, but we, we see a much more insidious side of the Reverend start to develop in this section. So he's no longer just like this Reverend who has really, you know, kind of antiquated ideologies and things like that in this like preaching against witches. We see him start to like take action about these ideologies in this section. And that's kind of the more four main plot threads that we're really seeing develop throughout this kind of hundred page chunk. Yay, Maggie! (laughs) All right, so do you want to start with talking about ghosts? Because ghosts are a big part of this entire book, but especially this section, we really delve into them. Um, And we meet a lot of different ghosts. Yeah, the Marys. 
Yes, let's start with the Marys. Okay, so I think the Marys are a really cool character, I guess. They're a collective character. And I really like that they're named Mary. They all uh, appear to be kind of poor, probably Irish Catholic uh, immigrants. And they were maids in the hotel, and they ended up getting burned alive. And now their spirits just kind of wander the hotel, and they continue to do their maid duties. And it scares a lot of patrons and a lot of the current live maids. They are called the Marys because a lot of them were named Mary when they died. However, some of them weren't. And I think it's really interesting that they have this one collective name now. And I think it relates a lot to the Bible. We see in part of this chapter, the Marys praying. Prayer is a very big part of their lives. And when we look at the Bible, Mary comes up a lot, not just because of Mother Mary, but because we have a lot of female characters in the Bible named Mary. However, I think it's important because Mary tends to be our big female symbol in Catholicism and Christianity as a whole for the female divine. And uh, in the Bible, it's also really interesting because we see the name Mary, but we don't always get attributes to which Mary it is. Is it Mary the Whore of Babylon? Is it Mary Magdalene? Sometimes people think this is the same person. Sometimes it's not. It could be any number of Marys. And I think that the author might be trying to play with that a little bit in her depiction of our Marys and their single name and their single identity. Because we can't differentiate the Marys that died, which is why they're all just called the Marys. The only time they're ever differentiated is on page 160 when the hotel's like head housekeeper is thinking about them during kind of a morning inspection and we find out about their backstory and while she's thinking about them she remembers all of their names individually she is kind of shown throughout this part to feel a lot of guilt about the fact that they died like she was in charge of them very directly she feels awful that they couldn't be saved and so she kind of really individually remembers them in a lot of ways but even then she also ends up falling prey to just kind of thinking them as the Marys, mostly because the people she's still working with who are essentially very actively being haunted by the Marys, that's what they're constantly referring to her as. But I think it's also interesting because the other character who we see feels some guilt about their death in this section is Perrin Stevens, who is also a ghost. He was the late uh, husband of Mrs. Marietta Stevens, who currently owns the hotel that we're kind of at. And he also feels guilty about the like what happened to the Marys. He says on page 160, Perrin Stevens prayed for them fervently and often. God bless the Marys, he whispered before resuming his wait for his wife. Keep them whole, give them peace. So even though he also feels like, obviously, a sense of responsibility, right? It's his establishment and like the lack of whatever sort of coding that did or did not exist at that time that caused their death. But like, even he just thinks of them singularly as the Marys, even though he also feels guilty about it. So Mrs. Fisher is really the only one who kind of keeps their separate identities alive because in death, they're just kind of this one mass of ghosts who (laughs) plays with Billy Dashley and kind of does their duties and are very, very upset that they're dead, understandably so. It's also interesting, though, because not all of the girls, not all the Marys were able to be identified, like, once they were burned. 
yeah, they just had to figure out who was like missing from the, like who didn't escape, and that's how they knew the individual names. But they weren't able to like necessarily assign name to the bodies. Yeah, yeah, they're overlooked, and it's sad too because that's that may be why they're still there because they don't have that individual identity. Yeah, maybe we don't know yet. Oh yeah, you're right. We don't know yet. We do find out eventually kind of more about the Marys, but... I have forgotten, so I'm sorry. No, 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 you're all good. We do eventually find more more about the Marys, but in this section, they're kind of just... We're setting the stage for them to become more important players later. But, like, this mass ghost is kind of interesting. And I think it's especially interesting because we meet lots and lots and lots of other ghosts in this book and in this section, even. And all of them have, like, individual identities and they're doing individual things. Like, I think what makes the Marys interesting partially is just the fact that, like, among this ghostly magical landscape that McKay has created, like, they're singular in the fact that they're multiplicitous. Yes. They're a unique entity. Yeah, we have we don't see any other sort of collective ghosts, I don't think. Nope. Everyone else is very much like doing their own thing, right? Like Billy Dashley, who we met last time, is running around having fun, like he's safe, he misses his parents. It's kind of implied, even though it's never explicitly stated, that he sticks around because he misses his parents and, like, wants to make sure that they are okay just as much as they are worried about whether he's okay. Mr. Stevens sticks around because of his wife and his kid and, like, making sure the hotel runs okay and all of that good stuff. Adelaide's mother sticks around because she has, like, things to atone for. It's interesting also because the Marys are the some of the only ghosts who like I think to a certain extent follow typical sort of ghosts like pop culture mythology in the sense that like the Marys stick around because they kind of need to be avenged right like their death isn't murder or anything but like they essentially died because they were of a lower class than everyone else who was at the hotel or at least working at the hotel and like they kind of have that sort of typical like we are still here because we were wronged in life and we're angry so i think that also sets them apart because everyone else that we've met so far yeah and i mean i think that there's definitely like ghost mythology that's like uh ghosts will stick around if they feel like they like still have things they need to do from life and stuff like that and i think you can make the argument that the other individual ghosts are kind of following that path a little bit more But I feel like a lot of times you think of ghosts and you think of someone angry who's like been wronged and now they have to go avenge themselves. And the Marys in this book are the only ones that like really stick to that sort of um, stereotype, I guess, or like mainstream thought process about ghosts. I don't think McKay depicts death in a scary way, at least as much as we're used to as a society seeing death. Death is more normalized. Yeah. We yeah. see people grieving, but we don't see we don't see a lot of vengeance. We see some, but it's also it's just like the dead are just kind of there. They're just like another entity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the way that people in like who are still alive in this book deal with death and ghosts is also very similar to like how people deal with death in general. Like some of them are you know desperately trying to contact their loved ones but some of but like most of them are very much just kind of like 
this is a thing that happened and I missed my loved one, but like now I am eventually able to move on with my life again. Marietta Stevens, I feel like, is the perfect example of that where she clearly misses her husband. It's very clear that like her and her husband have had a loving relationship and things like that, but he's been gone now for, I don't know if it says explicitly, but it's implied at least for like, he's been gone for like a couple of years, you know, he's been gone for a while now. And she's been able to move on with her life in certain ways. And, like, she still runs the hotel and she does a really great job at running the hotel. And, like, she's throwing a lot of her energy into trying to control her son's life, which is, like, a whole other situation. (laughs) But, like, I think that Marietta Stevens and even Judith Dashley, as much as she misses Billy, are, like, really... um, I feel like saying the word positive in relationship to this is, like, a weird way to say it, but, like, they're healthy i guess portrayals of like dealing with death to the point where they feel like positive connotations about about death culture that yeah. are not always depicted in our society i mean judith is interesting because she is she does actively seek people out to talk to billy and she does worry about him but once she knows he's okay i'd say that isn't as much of a problem anymore she's just kind of happy that he's okay And she's also interested in the occult. Like, she's interested in death in general, it seems. I think for me, the thing about Judith that makes her... Because her interest in the occult is so broad, her singular focus was never just, like, find someone who can put me back in contact with my son, right? She was just broadly interested and kind of aware of the fact that, like, within this interest, if it's possible she might be able to find someone who can put her back in contact with her son. And I feel like that's the difference, I guess, in my mind between kind of an unhealthy and unhealthy portrayal is that her general interests lead her down this path. It wasn't like a one track mind must find somebody who can do this sort of deal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think there and I think even Eleanor to a certain extent, even though like she tries so much to live up to her mother. She doesn't ever, except for the Dumb Supper, which we covered last time. Or no, is the Dumb Supper in this part? Okay, so we haven't covered the Dumb Supper yet. But aside from the Dumb Supper, she doesn't really ever try to seek her mother out. Like, she's constantly looking at her mother's words of wisdom and trying to do right by her. But she also understands that, you know, her mom's dead now and, like, her life kind of has to go on. Yeah, she only calls her mother, and we're going to talk about the Dumb Supper kind of, like, separately within this episode, just because it's sort of, like, the pivotal scene. But you're right in that, like, even as somebody who knows that it's possible to contact ghosts, she's aware of the fact that, like, she's only calling on her mother in this very great time of need, when they really need someone, not even just Eleanor's mom, but they need someone like Eleanor's mom, on who is also a ghost, to be able to solve this problem. If Eleanor had known someone that was better suited to answer these questions during the Dumb Supper, she would have called them, you know? Yeah. It was, and like, that doesn't diminish, I think, Eleanor's relationship with her mother. I think it just talks about a more healthy relationship with death. Yeah, that's really interesting. From a feminist lens, do you think that there's any connection there between having a healthy relationship with death and i know that because this book is about witchcraft from what little i do know of witchcraft death is a big part of it and a lot of people talk to their ancestors and that's a big thing throughout a lot of spiritualities do we think that 
more patriarchal religious systems try to separate death a little bit more? Or do we think that that fear of death is at all related to a patriarchal society? I don't actually know, to be honest. So, like, I've done a little bit of research on this in kind of a more academic standpoint that talks about the fact that a lot of more traditionally Eastern religions and cultures have a much healthier relationship with death than Western cultures. But it's always been about the fact that there's a built-in sort of grieving time and grieving process and kind of a set Like, there are steps that you can take very actively built into that society and culture Mm -hmm. that deal with grief. But from my, and to be clear, I'm not an expert in this. Uh, No, neither of us are experts. (laughs) Just like a little bit of research I've done kind of suggests that as being a lot of the ways and differences that people kind of deal with death and grieving and things like that. I don't know if it's necessarily a feminist thing, to be perfectly honest. I'm sure that we could make some connection, but like all of the research I've done has not necessarily pointed to that. Again, of course, acknowledging that my research has not been exhaustive. (laughs) I get that. I do wonder. I mean, I think there is a link. It's not a direct link, maybe. And again, speaking as a non-expert and just kind of putting ideas out there. I think that when we talk about oppression, we relate patriarchy, capitalism, and racism. Like, they all kind of align together because they they coincide with each other, right? Like, capitalism can help these things, these other forms of oppression. And I do wonder if maybe capitalism is part of the reason why we don't have enough grieving time because we feel like we have to keep moving forward and work. I don't know if that's a stretch. Or just, like, the forward momentum of the new society and, like, maybe the steps away from, like, these very human, natural processes. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I think that that, like, pressure to immediately get back into life and things like that could definitely be a part of it. I don't know. It's, I think it's a really interesting question. I think that there's just very little structure and guideline in our society about how to deal with death in a healthy way in general. We're all kind of prepared-ish for the fact that death happens, but then it happens and you're just kind of like swimming out to sea. Depending on who you are and your relationship to the deceased, you're very, very busy actually trying to put together like whatever funeral or, or whatever processions are happening afterwards. And then you typically have some sort of ceremony that maybe lasts for like a morning and then afterwards it's okay life starts again or at least like that's always been my experience with how death is treated in our culture and I think that it's just so focused on death practices in our culture are very focused on like the logistics of it and very not focused on actually dealing with like the emotional grieving process that comes with the fact that you have lost someone who is presumably important to you. But we do still ritualize it, which I think is a part of the logistics. I don't know. I wonder, because the logistics that we're talking about, like they are a ritual. And in a lot of ways, those are pathways for people to grieve. And just to be honest, like I don't have a lot of experience with having lost anyone close to me. 
um, my experiences with death are very limited. So I really am speaking from a place of ignorance here. I don't know. I wonder if people get too caught up in the logistical ritual and don't allow themselves actually engage in the ritual enough, maybe, or maybe the ritual itself is broken. I think that that's where like the capitalism problem comes in, right? Because funerals and coffins and burials are really, really expensive. And to put it out there, I have a lot more experience with death in my personal life, I think, than Harmony does. So like I've seen this process happen a lot of different ways and kind of in a lot of different iterations in my life. I think that for me, that's where the capital, like when someone dies, it's real stressful because it's not just the emotional loss, but suddenly there's a really big financial burden and things have to happen very, very, very quickly, like within a week. And then there's the logistic side of having to take care of that person's estate and things like that. And, like, I think that that's where capitalism kind of breaks whatever sort of ritualistic kind of grieving expectations we might have once had or kind of had the structure for. That I think that that's my thought on this. But to be honest, this is not something I've really thought about in super great depth, partially because I think that the ultimate problem here is that death is something that's really taboo in our society. We're all semi-prepared for the fact that, like, the people in our life will eventually die, that we will eventually die. But, like, we don't actually spend a very long time talking about what that means or, like, how to deal with the aftermath of that or, like, how to cope with that. And so because of that, it becomes this topic that everyone's obsessed with and no one really talks about. Except for in, like, the very closed context circles of when someone you know has actually passed away. And even then it's, like, so focused on that one person and just, like, getting through this moment and getting through to a point where you can be okay again. That, like, it doesn't necessarily, in my experience, help you to prepare for, like, the next time someone you know passes away. It, there's just no, I don't know, there's no, there's no conversation about it generally speaking because talking about death is just so taboo that makes sense interesting i'm, I'm really glad you shared your experiences on that i have nothing further to say on the topic to you <laughs> it's all good i don't really either but i do think that i guess maybe i do i think that's something to bring it kind of more back to the book i think that there's a real power and i mean i don't want to get too deeply into religion here because like that's a whole other podcast frankly But I think that there's a power for being able to, like, really believe deep-seatedly that the people you love are still around and able to watch over you. And in this book, in (laughs) extraneous circumstances, if things are put in exactly the right way, in exactly the right context, etc., etc., you could even talk to them again one day. You can know that they're okay. I think that dealing with death And having that really deep-seated belief, at least in this book, I think it's framed as being a good thing. Yeah. In real life, I'm not sure if it's always a good thing. But, like, in this book, like, that brings a lot of comfort to the characters, I think, who are dealing with and experiencing loss. No, I get get what you're saying. I agree. And I do think, I think that is relevant. Like, I think the religious part is relevant because this book deals a lot. Maybe indirectly. I mean, it talks about 
some forms of Christianity. And then it also is kind of, it kind of seems to be modeled off of the Wicca religion, which is a new religion, but like it's still a religion. And regardless, yeah. spirituality is definitely like coursing through the book in some fashion. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I think that is really interesting. Huh. Speaking of religion, so in the beginning of this section, we see Sister Pitta kind of engaging a little bit with folk magic. Um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't prepare you for this at all. But uh, she buys a little Mother Mary figurine, and it's meant to help protect her. And she's also asking for something to ward off witches. And I just think that's really interesting because we are touching on these aspects. Like, I think Sister Pidock practices witchcraft. Um, and I think we see it a few other times in the book. And I just thought that was interesting. Like, she takes the Mary statue. And we were talking about the Marys earlier. And Mary is, like, the divine figure for femininity in the Christian faith. So I just wanted I, to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting idea. Because I think it calls to uh, highlight the fact that, like, the differences between religions, even as something that's like on the surface, maybe seems so like antithetical to each other, like uh, Wicca or, and witchcraft and like Christianity are actually like in a lot of ways, very similar. <laughs> like there's lots of similarities throughout all religions. And I yeah. think that that's really called into like highlight here, even just in the part that you're talking about. So like on page 139, the very first part of this chapter, she's, um, she says she'd seen the woman on several occasions, but had never bo- bothered to speak with her in the past. The things she traded in were more of the Catholic variety, appealing mostly to those of the immigrant persuasion, a shade in parentheses or two outside the purview of Sister Piddock's brand of Christianity. So like she recognizes that like the things that this woman is trading in and, and like is making a living off of are outside of her like specific brand of christianity but she still very much identifies these things which i think you're right do strongly relate to like folk magic and things like that but she still mentally puts them within her general christianity bucket and purview and i think for me that's the part that really just showcases the fact that there are so many little rituals and little things and little tenets that end up falling in huge swaths of many religions yeah, I think it's really interesting, and it just brings her such comfort, which I think is interesting. Evening chimes sounded nine times from the bells of a nearby church. As spectators gathered to watch the latest round of images featured in the Magic Lantern show, a young girl, wearing a shabby gingham dress, passed through the crowd and stopped in front of Adelaide. Wisps of dark hair dangling in her face, she splayed a handful of playing cards like a fan. With a shy smile, she said, Tell your fortune, ma'am. For those who don't know, there is a mini Adelaide child who's like a little street urchin, and she meets Adelaide, and Adelaide pays her essentially to feed her fortune. He's also the one who gets kidnapped by the Reverend in this part. Ah, yes. Okay. The Reverend specifically picks her up because because she's, you know, a mini Adelaide, so to speak. Like, she's practicing the cards in the streets. She seems to be rather good at it, too, uh, because she needs to make a living this way. And 
Yeah, Adelaide says she's proud because, like, she picks up the the card and it happens to be, like, one of the best cards. And the girl repeats essentially exactly what Adelaide knows. And she's like, oh, she's a little uh, fortune teller in the making. And she also, Adelaide also does a spell to make sure the girl is safe. Which, you know, very immediately does not work. Like, <laughs> instantly does not work. I think that some of the most interesting parts about her, though, are honestly just kind of foreshadowing for, you know, what happens later in the book, because it sets up the Reverend's thought process. So, like, this is where we see Reverend Townsend go from being just, like, a voracious creature against witchcraft to someone who's, like, really taking things kind of far in the name of religion. So, Oh, is this where he gets sexual? No. Oh, okay. So we've seen him with Lena McLeod, who is the first girl that he kidnaps and does terrible things to in this story. She ends up committing suicide and haunts the cell that he has taken her to. We don't see the Reverend's perspective of how he, like, kidnaps her. We just see a little bit of his perspective once he already has her. But with the little soothsayer girl, he says. He could have sworn for a moment the disheveled child looked more otherworldly than human. Was she a demon, an angel in disguise, another witch? Blinking away the vision, he figured he was seeing things. A miracle, a sign that all he'd done was right. Perhaps the girl standing before him was another test of his faith. Smiling down at her, he thought, thy will be done. We see, like, his whole justification. And for me, I think that's the interesting part. So he sees the little girl, and then he talks to her about why she's doing the devil's work. And then he's, she's essentially like, I like food. I like to eat. I need money. And so, and so the reverend makes off like he's just going to take her someplace safe so that she can get food and like move out of this line of work. (sighs) And he takes her to this horrible hell dungeon, essentially. (laughs) We don't see her arrival there, but the justification that like his will is clearly like being sanctioned by the will of God to kidnap a tiny child off the streets who's just trying to eat. We see, I feel like, the breakdown of his sanity. Like, we really see him start to indulge in delusions of grandeur and everything seems like a sick person in these chapters. And not that he didn't seem that way before, but I feel like now it's, yeah, it's the justification if you're having an episode, then, like, these are the things, the thoughts you might think, like, oh, this is happening as a way to, like, guide me. Like, you're reading it too much into everything. It sounds like a really dangerous acid trip, essentially. Yeah, but I do think that there's part of his thought process that is built into a Christian patriarchal society where, like, reverence are supposed to kind of be the mouth of God and things like that. And, That's especially true in a time like 1880, I think, where, like, 
literacy is the highest it's ever been, but it's still not high, you know? So, like, lots of people have to go to church and hear their pastor or their preacher or their reverend or whatever, you know, whatever name you're using at the time, interpret for them. And religious men, essentially, at this time are still being lauded as actually kind of they're like, given more power yeah and like there there's definitely there's definitely a certain aspect of this where i totally agree with you that like yes this definitely showcases his breakdown in logical sanity sure but i think it's also very much a commentary on the fact that a lot of what sets up this logical breakdown is this very patriarchal society enforced by the fact that he's very very steeped in this specific brand of of christian religion that sets him up on a pedestal even higher as someone who like can have their decisions be justified by god and is allowed to make that kind of assumption i guess no i agree with you and you all can't see the have been nodding my head as Maggie talks. So just know that that happens usually whenever Maggie says something. Um, I think though, what's interesting is Sister Piddock so far, I believe, is really the only person we see putting him on that pedestal because yeah. we are in the 1800s now and not everyone, he does not have as much power as he would say in medieval times when the church literally was the power force and like deciding lords and rulers and such. Yeah. We see um, a lot of reference to, like, his flock in general, but the only person of that flock that we ever actually see and interact with is Sister Piddock. Yeah. So it's our, yeah, our perspective of his power comes from the physical harm that he is being allowed to do because he's doing it to women and people don't care. And te- it, te- it looks like it's, we see with uh, Lena McLeod, is that her name? Yeah. Yeah. We see with Lena like, she is a, an immigrant. She doesn't have a husband here. So no one's really looking for her. And now we see it with this street child. So, like, he's deliberately picking out people who no one's going to look for. Like a serial oh, killer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And he's not going, at least at this point, you know, he doesn't go for people who Would be are, it. like, a, of a higher class in society either. He's... He's very much testing the waters, so to speak, in this section. And yeah. it's really scary to read. Like, a lot of this book is very lighthearted, and it's written in a very light tone. Even a lot of the scary things that happen, I think, are written in a really light tone. Not to say that, like, they don't take... Not to say that it's, like, unaware that it's talking about a serious subject. I think it's very aware that it's talking about a serious subject. It's more just this book... I think for me really excels in the way that you can sit there and and read it and like have a really good time and be very thoroughly entertained. But the more you think about what actually happens, the more you just kind of like see these layers and layers and layers of just the very messed up things that are happening and are being allowed to happen. And I think it's really good because for me, Especially, you know, we, we're talking about it in a lot of depth here. Like, it holds up to being picked apart. Amy yeah. McKay very clearly crafted a lot of this book to hold up to this, like, level of it. And I'm just very impressed to be able to 
take a book that seems on the surface so light and fluffy, but like the more you think about it, the more it's just like, oh my god, so much of what is happening here, especially in this antagonist plot that leads to the climax, is horrifying. That's true. And just for some backstory, when I gave Maggie a list of books to read and she picked this one out, I was, oh, that's probably the fluffiest book on the list. But as we've been delving through it, it's not that fluffy. You're right. (laughs) I think it's really kind of good because I think that it's the sort of book that would appeal, you know, to a very wide audience. But like, it's going to make that really wide audience think to a certain extent because it deals with real themes. It deals with very real themes, and some of them are more subtle than others. Like, so there's definitely things in here that are in your face. We like need anything to that happens. This. Yeah, anything that happens with the Reverend. Yeah, 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 for sure. Speaking about the Reverend, and I know that we both really like this book, but one of your main criticisms that we've talked about a little bit off air is the way that men are depicted in this book. And off air, we talked a lot about the men that we see in this chapter. And aside from the Reverend, there are three main men that we see in this chapter. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about how you feel about the way men are depicted in this book? Yeah, I just feel like... In, I feel conflicted about it because on the one hand, I think that this is a book that is written by a woman for, I think, oh, like women identifying people for the most part. Um, yeah, or femme identifying. Yeah, and there's like a lot of really fabulous, well-crafted, in-depth portrayals of women in this book. But like, by contrast, the men are very one-dimensional and the majority of them are painted in a very negative way i don't know how to like talk about this without making it seem like hashtag not all men because like that's not what i'm trying to say at all i just wish that like we saw a little bit more depth to the male characters that we have here because i feel there was like some attempt to make them more nuanced yeah it just didn't go very far i i think that's the thing i wish they were either just kind of like one dimensional placeholders or we were seeing real characters cuz for me we're hitting a place that's right smack dab in the middle and it just like doesn't work for me for the most part so like let's take brody and what's his face anderson as as an example if that's okay with you cuz i know you wanted to talk about them so, like, Brody is the most in-depth male character we see in this book, because he's probably, besides the Reverend, who is, like, the evil dude, he's the most he's the most main character of all the, like, positive. Do we ever get his perspective? We yeah. might. We do, we do get Brody's perspective? Okay. I just wanted we to We also get sure. Anderson's perspective once or twice, but, like... Oh, right. Okay. Not, not in this section. Not in this section. No, we do okay. get it in this section, because he goes to visit Sophie in this section. But, so, like, Brody is, Brody's, like, got a whole life, essentially. (laughs) Like, he's got a past, he's got a wife that died, like, he's got this relationship with his father, he's got this whole war thing, he's got the fact that he lost an arm, like... He's got his occult interests. He's got his occult interests, he's a scientist. Brody's got some stuff going on. Ultimately, like, he's a pretty good dude. He has his flaws, but, like, he's one whole nuanced character, right? Like, we see lots of sides of Brody. Maybe he's a little simplistic in some ways, but, like, for the most part, he's, you know, he's a character. Yes. And then we see Anderson, 
who is at least important enough to get his perspective. He's definitely a side character, but he's important enough that his, his perspective is brought to us a couple of times. And he has none of that nuance. Anderson has uh, two qualities, maybe. The first is that, in Harmony's words, he's like a frat dude, like bro dude sort of deal. <laughs> and like, favorite dudes. <laughs> very, especially in the first scene we see him with Brody, says some very questionable things, like with his attitudes, not just towards women, but just the world. It's very, very, very stereotypical macho masculinity dude it's not even stuff where it's like oh you know like this is an interesting take on this terrible opinion it's like verbatim just the most stereotypical macho dude stuff you could be thinking about to be fair we are in the 1800s and i feel like this is stuff that we still see today so oh yeah, he's a product yeah. of his time a little bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll but give him that I'm, i lie brody has three qualities because he's got that aspect the second thing he has is that he has... Wait, we're talking about Anderson. Oh, this yeah. Okay, no, it's okay. <laughs> the second thing about Anderson is that he's got his war injury. Like, he is also very much carrying physical battle wounds with him. And the third thing is that he's in love with this chick, Sophie, who's in a sanitarium. He feels like she shouldn't be. The reasons he's going there are weird, because it's... <laughs> He just wants to pick up ladies. But in the sanitarium. So, like, this whole conversation he has with Brody is essentially being like, hey, you're a psychologist. Can you get this chick that I, like, accidentally fell in love with out of the sanitarium? And, like, on the one hand, I feel like there could be an interesting kind of conversation there about the fact that so many women at this time period are put into mental health institutions for no reason other than than the fact that essentially their husbands don't want to deal with them anymore. Yeah. And I think that it says something to Anderson that like he genuinely seems to think that like that is what has happened to Sophie and like would like to spring her. Yeah. But also he wouldn't care if he hadn't accidentally fallen in love with her. Like if he she just, wasn't hot. He would be like, that's fine. Hot, he wouldn't <laughs> care. And like, it's just so the whole situation of like these dudes going to the sanitarium, it just feels so predatory to me. Like on the one hand, it's very, yes, the people in there obviously deserve like friendship and contact with the outside world and things like that. But like this specific setting of like this dance that they're apparently holding all the time just feels so gross and so predatory. Because when we eventually do go to the sanitarium, we realize that there are people in there who like do need help and are for being taken advantage of by the men who are going there for like these things and yeah sophie's probably not one of them but it's just like the context that this is happening in is just so gross and weird three things about anderson and it's like are we supposed to feel sympathetic he's not a character he has three attributes he does three things i mean okay so i do feel a little bit i mean i hate Anderson because I am predisposed to that and horribly biased but I do feel sympathetic for him because he is a man who you know lost a part of himself and I feel like he's fluffing up and trying to show dominance and be all bro-y as a way to like regain his masculinity I also think this is interesting because what bothers me a lot about this interaction he has with Brody is that Brody is completely disgusted by Anderson. And, and won't he's, say anything. Yeah, and he won't say anything, which is just, 
oh, not to get too personal, but <laughs> men, you need to start saying stuff. It bothers me so much how many men I have in my life who I love and who I know uh, try to be good people but do not speak out to their friends or their coworkers because they're their buds. They're their bros. And Anderson and Brody aren't even friends, and he's not willing to do that. He's not willing to stand up to Anderson, and it's because he feels pity for him. Because he recognizes that Anderson has also lost this part of his masculinity or feels like he's lost this part of this his masculinity. And I wonder if that's because Brody, to a certain extent, also feels like he's maybe lost part of his masculinity with his disability. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that you're right that like there's definitely room to feel sympathy for Anderson. I just, we were saying, like, my main critique of this of this novel, and to be clear, I really enjoyed this novel. Like, we're only picking at it because we think it's worth picking at, but I just wish that we were, like, if we were going to make him a sympathetic character despite his flaws, we should have made him a sympathetic character despite his flaws. Like, we shouldn't have had it be he has three characteristics and one of them makes him sympathetic. Like, that's, I think, my main criticism here is that for me, this is where the craft fails, not the ideology behind the craft. Does that make sense? It does. I think I see that more with Brody. Because I think I feel like I've seen a lot of Andersons in my life, and maybe I am just reading them that one-dimensionally. I'm, oh, you're just trying to like reclaim this broken part of yourself, but you're still a dickwad. I feel like I see that more, that, that inability to like really delve deep with uh, men in Brody. I I think that the failure lies more there, and that's because Brody is more of a main character. And we talked a little bit about this off-air, but with Brody and his relationship with Adelaide, we both kind of felt that Brody was a little bit boring and a little bit, like, we see see parts of his life, but, like, we there's not, I don't know, no, He's no, not no. very. Where is the page where he talks about falling in love with Adelaide instantly? Let's do it. I cannot. Okay. We it's 183. Dr. Brody could barely breathe. Not because she'd laid bared his past, but because she'd exposed his heart. How could this lilac scented bohemian know so much about him? She'd spoken of things he'd never shared with anyone. What a gift she had. What a beautiful mind she'd been given. When Judith had pointed her out to him, he hadn't been able to take his eyes off her scars, couldn't help but think of how he might have done things differently if he'd been the one to put the scalp under her skin. Now that he was in her presence, those thoughts along with her scars had faded away. All he could think of was how rare she was, this woman who could see into a heart he'd thought was no longer even there. noticed this before but now that you're reading it does it kind of sound a little bit like he's fetishizing her yeah (laughs) (laughs) the bohemian lilac scented woman oh my god and also like there's this weird aspect just for a second there of like doctor patient stuff where it's like oh i don't like that at all (laughs) i would have helped you better i could have been your savior but to go back to Harmony's original point, we feel like this like passage kind of shows his boringness just because in a lot of ways he seems to be crafted to just kind of be every woman's wet dream. Like, yes. 
which is something I see a lot with some writers, usually women writers. And I don't mean that to be like women can't write because they definitely can. But I think this is a common trope that may be harmful to everyone (laughs) just because we have this whole Prince Charming archetype. And yeah, this doesn't seem to be like how a real person thinks or falls in love so much as it does the way, and I'm speaking very gendered here in a very binary way, just because that's the language that I have. And that's the way these tropes tend to fall into. That's Um, the way this trope is being presented in this book. Yes. Yeah. In the trope, it's like the way women wish men felt about them. But I don't know. I've been in a few relationships with some decent guys who have fallen in love with me. And I just don't think that they would have ever used that language or I don't know. That's not what thinks about me. I I can guarantee I am not my husband's lilac scented bohemian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it just it seems to be like I think there's this this trope and this idea that women have growing up. And I know I have had it. And this is why I think I I feel so cautious about it, that uh, the good man, the good man is going to be the one who instantly just sees you and knows you and falls in love with you for who you are and just accepts all parts of you. And to a certain extent, like that's true. Like whoever loves should be able to accept you. But I don't think it's going to be necessarily this big romantic thing. And I feel we often take away the personhood of characters like this, like they become our Prince Charmings and our saviors. And that's problematic because A, we don't need a savior and that's not the foundation for a healthy relationship. And B, like real people just don't think like that. (laughs) I totally agree with you, but I also think that something that makes Brody interesting is the fact that he's a combo of the Prince Charming and almost like the bad boy sort of way. Because I don't really think that Adelaide ever views Brody as someone who can save her or as someone who needs... To, I, and I don't think that Adelaide views herself as someone who needs to be saved. Instead, yeah. here, we see, like, this bad boy sort of thing where Adelaide is the only one who can save him from himself. Oh, yeah. I think that that's the thing. I think that sometimes that in, like, this trying to reverse the Prince Charming ladies needing to be saved trope, I think we've gone too far the other direction where it's the only person who loves you is the person that you fixed and that you saved and that you healed this like emotionally stunted man who has the capability of feeling with like a teaspoon that like that's love. I think that for me, that's the that's the thing that like makes Brody almost frustrating is that he is simultaneously both of these tropes like he is both this like Prince Charming, but he's also got just enough flaws that like Adelaide's the only one who can see into his broken heart, you know? And that's what really kills me. (laughs) She's the one making him feel, which I think is something we talked a little bit off air. Like it's her responsibility to put him in touch with his emotions. Yeah. And also something that we touched upon that I think could be interesting to talk about here that I feel much more conflicted on is also kind of the like insta-love aspect of Mm -hmm. this. Where, like, this is only, on page 183, it's only maybe the second time they've met, if not the first. And this is I think it's the first. How he feels. Yeah, and we've talked about that because in our personal lives, Maggie tends to be a little bit more of an insta-love person, whereas I am all cautious all times. Although I don't think my partners would say that. I think they would have definitely categorized me as insta-love. I did feel like that was maybe a little bit unrealistic but my main problem was more I think 
with the language that he was ascribing oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to her. Because I just don't think... I don't I, know. I think that language, though, can, tends to go along with, like, infatuation and the insta-love trope. Like, I think that a lot of times when you're really in that rush where you're like, oh, yeah, like, this person is for me. Like, that is when you have delusions of grandeur about how perfect they are, right? Yeah. So to me, I think I, I'm... I, I think I have a hard time separating that ridiculous language from the like insta love aspects because if it wasn't insta love, it wouldn't be at all realistic for him to be thinking like that. But then at the same time, like you were saying earlier, like I feel conflicted about it because like in my life, I am the insta love person. That's the love story of me and my husband is wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. We both just kind of knew what was up and what was happening. And like, now we've been together a really long time and are married. So like it, it worked, but. But, and I don't know how personal you want to get here, but like, I will say though, and this is something we also talked about off air a little bit. Like, even though you guys did know about each other kind of right away, you had spent a lot of time before having that feeling like, you had some marathon dates and things like that. Like there was still kind of a lot more time invested. It definitely was not like the first time we had met or spoken. That is yes. But I think too, like this is what Adelaide to a certain extent would want to be seen as, which I, I think is more my problem. Like the fact that he just gets it right away and is like, and she's like all worried about, Oh no, he sees me as like, not this person. I have a crush on him. And I also want to talk about real quick. I know it's kind of out of order, but we talked a little bit about Adelaide not necessarily wanting to be saved. But I think the book is kind of pushing us to another common trope that we see a lot in romance movies and novels where the woman like is independent and she thinks she doesn't need a man, but like she really does because it will soften her up and like make her a better person. And I think that's something I think we see a little bit with Adelaide's plot that bothers me a little bit. Yeah, I didn't, I honestly, I didn't read it or think of it like that when I was, you know, I I was going to say initially going through, but honestly, I've spent so much time with this book at this point that like there is no initial going through. (laughs) That to me has never crossed my mind before, but now that you've said it, I can definitely see it. Especially the idea of like a woman who needs to be softened up by like falling in love. Yes. We see that all the time. We see that like with the the high power CEO and yeah. any Hallmark movie ever. <laughs> yeah. Adelaide is the high powered CEO here for sure. And also something that we talked about that's problematic essentially about their relationship is the fact that they are judith explicitly puts them together because they both are experiencing disability like adelaide with the with the scarring and brody with the arm that pairing ultimately ends up working and the book is self-conscious about it right like when i say that judith explicitly puts them together it's because adelaide criticizes the fact that she's put them together for this reason like the book is self-aware enough to realize that it's poking at a problem i would say yeah but like i we both just thought it was worth mentioning that that aspect also comes into play here you know and i think the way i worded it before i think this is the book is conscious of it i think they are placed together yes both because they have a disability and that in the way that judith dashley sees it seems to be like it's a visible baggage 
And I, I, I don't know. I was, I was worried about it during a second reading because it does seem like they both kind of fall for each other in part because they realize that each other, like that they're vulnerable in similar ways. Yeah. But I do think that the book is more self-aware after a second reading and realizes that that's wrong because Adelaide kind of is like, what is this woman doing placing me with someone just because, yeah. And she really flaunts it too. Like she's, she's angry enough about it that like she really kind of throws manners out the window for a while. (laughs) Not that Adelaide was ever the most well-mannered person in this story, but like usually with Judith, she is a much more well-mannered kind of, I don't want to say well-behaved, but like she, she obeys etiquette a lot more. Yeah. And Judith has money. (laughs) And she's pissed off enough at Judith at this point that she's kind of like, screw it. Like we're going to do what we want if she's going to do this, you know? Yes. And she does, and it doesn't offend Brody, which is interesting. No. Brody, Brody is even kind of relieved about it, but then again, like, I think the thing to circle back just for a second to the Insula thing is that Brody goes really quickly from being kind of indifferent about her, like, just trying to feel it out, and then she, like, reads his palm or something, and then it's like, wow, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's totally a fetishization, which is, I guess, like, to a certain extent, how everyone kind of falls up. Like, you don't actually know a person when you first meet them. So, like, your feelings of attraction do probably start from something kind of shallow that you're, like you were saying, with into love, like, projecting onto them. Yeah. But, yeah, it is a little bit bothersome. It's like, oh, you can read my future, and, like, this is the thing I'm super interested in, and... You know, it kind of relates to to like the whole idea of like woman being mysterious and powerful, which this book we see throughout this entire book because it deals with like witchcraft and that's all about women being mysterious and powerful. Yeah. But I don't know. It just feels strange coming from a man. A little bit more about Brody that we talked about was the fact that he is a kind of boring person, which I think bothered you a little bit more than it bothered me, maybe. I don't think that bothered is the right word just because it wasn't it wasn't, like, something I found problematic or anything. Like, I was just bored by him. Like, yeah. I didn't care. I cared about Adelaide, but, like, whether or not their relationship was going to work out for me, I was just kind of like, whatever. Like, it's either going to work or it's not going to work, and who cares? Well, I wonder, though, I wonder, we were talking about, like, how maybe that's kind of what Adelaide needs. And, like, I feel not that my partner is boring because he's definitely not. He is definitely a strange goose, um, but <laughs> he is very stable in a lot of ways. And sometimes he attributes himself to, to boringness and he's not boring. He's a very interesting human, but he's a lot more earthy than I am. And I identify a lot with Adelaide's coarser nature. So like, I do kind of identify with that, like needing someone a little bit more stable, especially if you're like a more showy person. But do you think that's maybe problematic? I don't know. Do you think that that plays into any sort of romance trope? I mean, I think it plays into a romance trope for sure, but I think also that not all tropes are bad, bad necessarily. Yeah. Like, I think that there's a, a lot, I think there's a lot of people who kind of ascribe to the idea that opposites attract sort of way, or at least like yeah. a certain way attract. And I think that in a lot of ways it's true. Like, I don't know. I think that in a partner it's good to, have like certain areas where you're both really interested you both have similar habits but also I think it's good like you have to be different enough people that you're still interesting to the other person right like yeah you were exactly the same 
sure you'd have a lot in common, but you would never be pushed out of your comfort zones or anything. So like, I think that saying that in certain ways that Brody kind of represents things that Adelaide needs in her life. Like, I don't think, I think that maybe need is a strong word, but like that she would benefit from being around more. Like, sure. I think that's fine. Yeah. I mean, she is kind of around that more though, because Brody's like a very, I don't know. I don't know. Like in some ways his personality seems a little bit more Eleanor-esque in that like he's logical and thinks things through and is a little bit more quiet. And like those do tend to be the people that she's kind of attracted to because Eleanor is her other partner. And we see that in the book. She, um, there's a whole, yeah, section where she talks about like Eleanor being her partner. She's just not, she's not her business partner. Like she is her life partner at this point because they live together. But I think also part of the point of that I think highlights the fact that female friendships and romantic relationships whether they're like FF or FM or somewhere in between because there are nine binary parties involved they served like romantic relationships and friendships no matter how important the friendship or how important or unimportant the romance like they serve different purposes for a lot of people you know like you so like just because you're attracted I think in some ways to those qualities in your friends doesn't necessarily mean that they're necessarily going to like influence you in the same way or like affect you in the same way as if your partner has those same qualities. Cause like we also see Adelaide being kind of annoyed at Eleanor, I think for some of those like stability things and some of her more practical homey, boring quote unquote factors. Like Adelaide recognizes the fact that she needs Eleanor to do all of that stuff, but she also feels like, it's boring and stuffy and occasionally she just wants to like go out and be able to do whatever the heck she wants. And like that's true in the book, at least she values those qualities differently in Brody. And I think that that's kind of real life, you know, like there's certain qualities in my partner that I see and value that are like similar to partners, like qualities that my friends have, but they weigh differently on me is very, very different. (laughs) Yeah. Because friendships are, friendships do serve a different purpose. I think for monogamous relationships, at least, I think that in some ways we place a lot more emotional need out of our, our partners. Like they are supposed to be our emotional rocks or like the first person we go to in some ways. And in friendships, I don't know, my, my boyfriend has described it almost as being a little bit more pure because we like, because there's not that sort of necessity I guess, to, like, place that emotional depth into it. But so, like, when it happens, it's a little... And and it's spread out a little bit more. I don't know. Am I communicating effectively? Do you kind of get what I'm saying? I kind of get what you're saying. I think that something I really like about this book is that it places the importance of romantic relationships and friendship on very equal ground. Like, Eleanor and Adelaide and Beatrice also, who we haven't talked about very much we'll get to her (laughs) (laughs) their friendship their little threesome is just as vital it's just as important it is just as like life-changing love as is like the other romantic things that are happening in the book and the idea that like friendship and like having that close relationship is all you really need like need need in life i think is very it's very prevalent and very prominent. Like I enjoy the fact that this is a book who, about three women who have excellent friends and a business and 
they are perfectly happy and perfectly content with their lives. And the romantic offshoots that they have are kind of just like the cherry on top, so to speak. I agree. And I think, I don't know. I think that's important for people. That's important for me, at least. I think in some ways, not like I love my partner and I I tend to be like, I tend to be more satisfied as a human when I am in a relationship. But I think that not having friendships, I, I just spent a year where I wasn't close to like I wasn't close to any of my physical friends and I did not have any new friends in the area I was in. And for me, like it is that that is more of a necessity, I think. Like I can be unhappy and single or brokenhearted or something, but like having friendships makes my life more balanced and is kind of like having a house or something for me. I don't know. Yeah. In some ways I think it is a little bit more important, even if as an individual, we don't place the same emotional depth on our friends as we do on our partners. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things where it's like, it reminds, it's a really great book for reminding you that like your friendships are just as valuable as everything else happening in your life. Because I think that the problem is that so much of pop culture is so obsessed with romantics that like, it like the value isn't placed on friendship in like a general cultural you know like yeah. I think for a lot of individual people the the power is placed on friendships but like it's nice to also see that reflected in a piece of media I guess is what I'm trying to say yeah yeah good job Amy McKay good job um, Amy McKay. Yay! and we are back in case you had a break I don't know if you did but you may have we are going to talk a little bit about Lucy and Eleanor and their relationship They kind of have an insta-love relationship, too. And in this section, we see some big conflicts going on with them. And Eleanor is kind of placed in a position where she needs to help Lucy. Yep. Poor. Yeah, I know. Poor Eleanor. What I thought was... So, in this section, Eleanor and Lucy meet at the Statue of Liberty. And Lucy confides in Eleanor a bit about her husband... And um, I think about her pregnancy. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So Eleanor being a witch has the capability of giving Lucy things that could prevent pregnancy, like birth control. And she also has the capability of maybe giving her things that could terminate pregnancy. Yeah. And it's just really interesting because Lucy, we only see Lucy through Eleanor's perspective. Yeah. She doesn't really depict herself as a victim at all. But we also get a little bit about how her husband is maybe not the best and is maybe abusive. I think there is a quote on page 209. Their only loss is if you perceive them to be Eleanor insisted. Think of what you might gain. By that same logic, I'm only a prisoner if I think myself one. I'm not like you, dear Eleanor. I'm weak and spoiled and afraid. It's simply not in me to be brave. Eleanor is essentially into Lucy enough that she is willing to risk a a lot so that they can kind of live together semi-openly as a couple and, and be happy. And Lucy is not into this idea for reasons. <laughs> yes, but that's not, this is, 
the that's the subtext that we're getting from this. So the actual context, though, is that Eleanor is telling Lucy to leave her husband, regardless of whether or not she's with Eleanor. Yeah. Or to not have a baby, essentially. And Lucy has chosen... Lucy just went up and left Eleanor because she chose this high society life because it gives her certain privileges that she didn't have before. But it also means that she's somebody's property and she doesn't have as much choices and she doesn't have freedom. And, and she's Ele- treated like a piece of property too. That is heavily implied in this section and later in the book becomes very explicit. Yes. So Lucy here is both a victim but she's also kind of like a fuck girl because we're seeing it through Eleanor's perspective. Like she is a victim, but she does not present herself necessarily as a victim. And she does not want to get out of the situation because of the societal context around her, which is true for most victims of um, a domestic abuse and assault and dating violence. I would say a lot I, of them feel trapped. Yeah. I think that Lucy is in a, Our view of Lucy is very, 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 very skewed because Eleanor is so scared for her and simultaneously is very, still, like, very attracted to her and simultaneously feels a lot of pity for her. Because Eleanor, at the very least, has never really been someone else's property and has always had the, like, true... She's always been able to make her own choices and has always, like, had that strength to just make her own choices. So, like, Lucy's victimhood here is very real and very important, but is very heavily skewed here by the fact that Eleanor pities her so much. And is in love with her. And is in love with her. So it's hard as a reader to parse out how Lucy really feels about what's happening. Because all of the interpretation for Lucy is muddled and... Eleanor realizing she's a victim, but also feeling pity for her for other reasons, but also wishing that she would just be with Eleanor. And it becomes a really complicated scene, not even talking about the fact that Lucy is going to Eleanor so that she can have an abortion. To be fair, though, I think even if, even if, like, even if Lucy and Eleanor were not romantically involved, I think Eleanor would still feel obligated to help yes. her because yes, yes. that's who Eleanor is. She's a witch. That's what she was taught. She was taught that her position in the world was to help people. And Lucy, oh, yeah. on the other hand, too, like, it's not like she's being a fuck girl necessarily in going to Eleanor. Like, Eleanor is probably the only resource she has to get this type of help. Just, I think what's interesting about Lucy is that, like, she states it very much as, like, this is a choice I made, and I, now I just have to deal with it. Yes, that's and, Yes, and it, we're explicitly, yes, talking about her marriage, but we're also, it seems, in subcontext, also talking about her being in the closet. Like, she chose to be with a man, and she chose to ghost Eleanor, and now she is choosing, to a certain extent, maybe to have his baby or to like, live this sort of life with this man in which she is controlled. I think also another aspect of this scene is the fact that Eleanor very much does not articulate what she actually wants. Yes. Like, Eleanor, at the very top of 207, we see a passage that says, Eleanor shook her head. No wonder you're in a bind. How many days are you past due? It doesn't matter, Lucy said, dismissing Eleanor's concern. 
It most certainly does, Eleanor chided. I need to know how late you are so I can decide how best to help you. Lucy sighed. What if I don't want your help? Then why are we here? Eleanor asked. Lucy didn't reply. Do you want a child? Eleanor asked, wishing she knew whether Lucy even wanted to be married. I don't know what I want anymore, Lucy said. I'm tired of thinking. Please tell me what to do. So, like, Lucy is also at this point where, like, she really, I think, also just needs a friend. Like, yeah. she needs someone to listen to her and to help her parse things out. And Eleanor kind of throws it in her face just a little bit because she's like, why don't you ask your aunt for advice or better your husband? And Aww. like, Lucy really just needs someone to help her figure it out. Like we, like we stated that, you know, Lucy's coming to her to talk about like birth control and abortion and like, yes, she is, but it's also implied that like to a certain extent she doesn't she doesn't even know if she wants an abortion she almost just trying to feel out what her options are because like this is a lady who is in a terrible situation no matter how you slice and dice it and like she doesn't know what she wants you know and also like let's be honest it's 1880 i say lady do we even know how old lucy actually is like it's possible that she's only 17 or 18 because like that's really common in this time period that's true. We know she's a younger woman, and we know Eleanor is, like, probably in her 30s, I think. So we just know that Lucy is a little bit younger. I would say she's probably not 18 or 17 because no. of Eleanor's relationship to Beatrice, who is that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, I think that the idea of, like, this also comes back to female friendship, too, is a really important one. Lucy... <sighs> She's just in this place where she really just needs someone to talk to. And I think that to a certain extent, there's something here that talks about the fact that, like, Lucy regrets kind of ending their relationship, but it's not necessarily for, like, the romantic aspects of it, as it is so much that Eleanor is someone who knows her and who gives good advice and like is just generally a good person to have in your corner and i think that it's also shown that like lucy misses the romantic aspects don't get me wrong i'm not trying to sanitize the fact that this is like ultimately well uh, we don't really know though because we're not getting anything from her perspective yeah 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 i just think that like the friendship aspect is also important and I think that it has Lord in this case specifically, sure, right? Lucy is in a terrible situation. She's being abused. She has lost control over her life or from at least what she says, willingly given over control of her life for like the class benefits of it. Yeah, but- and I just want to clarify, I'm not saying that she's she she thinks that. She is just presenting herself as as that. But that's not okay. I don't believe that um victims ever choose to be victims no or or i guess survivors survivors probably is a better term but i do think that like what is happening to her is not her fault and she did not choose that no 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 this is like literally just the the words you lucy is using to speak to eleanor right now yeah that is what they are saying because we don't get lucy's perspective to see how she really feels about the situation you tell yourself these things It just makes it difficult to talk about in this context because obviously none of this is actually Lucy's fault, right? There is so many things outside of her control here. She is, by choosing to get married, she's making the best of a terrible situation. She could not have known at the time also what her husband would actually really be like, if we're being honest. Yeah. 
but it's just hard when because it's all from Eleanor's perspective like we are only offered Lucy's defense mechanism against it all almost you know like the words that she says to make it okay for herself and for everyone else and all of that and like I think that the power of this scene is that we eventually get to a point where we like see that Eleanor knows her well enough to see through the parts of that that are bullshit and and to understand what isn't bullshit but like the friendship aspect here is difficult especially because Lucy refers to it as a friendship and Eleanor very much mentally refers to it as a relationship so like yeah sure there's definitely something to say about the fact that they're in public right now and lucy can't be like yes our our dalliance together was lovely but you know she very said very clearly says but you being who you are and me being who i am our friendship was fated to end so like we were talking a little bit before about them like about friendship and about the importance of it and I am not qualified to talk about this because I have not yet experienced this, but I have a lot of female friends who like other females. And I wonder if this is something that maybe, that maybe, I don't know, that you deal with a little bit more in same sex relationships, like the difference between friendship and, and love. And if it's a little bit more complicated, especially in a world where uh, you're not allowed to be in same-sex relationships. Because this is something that I have heard from some of my lesbian friends, that it is a little bit more difficult to parse out, is this a friend or is this a lover? And I wonder if Amy McKay is trying to get into that deliberately. But I don't know. So listeners, if you do have any thoughts on it, please do email at us. And I will someday put in our email in these episodes, and you'll know where that is at the end of the episode. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I wonder though if it is playing a little bit more into that. And I'm not educated enough on gay relationships to know, but I, I do wonder if that's a little bit like maybe she's referring to it as friendship because maybe she doesn't think of it as being a real relationship because it is same sex or, and whether that's because it's like a societal thing or that's just a her thing. I don't know. It's just this scene is so complicated by the fact that we only see Eleanor's perspective, but also like that's life, right? Like you're only ever going to actually see your perspective. I think it's just, I think that this scene for me is very, very powerfully crafted because there's just so much happening and so much pain coming from so many different sides. And you wish desperately for Eleanor's sake that you could just crack open Lucy's head and see what's actually happening there. And you never get that satisfaction. And I feel like there's just like a desperation to know what is actually going on and what is happening and how we can help Lucy to the best of our abilities, which only intensifies as the book goes on. A lot of the conversation we're having about like Lucy's victimhood here is a precursor to the fact that we have read the entire book and these themes come back again and again and again. The book builds how much Lucy needs to get out of the situation she's in right now. Yes, it definitely does. And it does imply here in this section that her husband does not like people touching his possessions. I believe that is the exact language that is used. Yep. So just keep that in mind. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that talking, I think that ending this section talking about friendship also ties into the other friendships that we haven't had a chance to dive into yet 
we haven't had a chance to talk about Beatrice at all so far. But a lot of like the major plot points that happen in this section actually have to do with Beatrice. One of which being that like at the very beginning, Beatrice and Adelaide have a very complicated relationship. Yeah. Um, Adelaide, you know, is ostensibly the person who is trying to go out and hire this person in the first part. Then, you know, to recap, Eleanor gets frustrated about it. So the whole thing gets blown out of the water. And then Adelaide goes off on a bender, essentially, with drinking lots of absinthe. Which is so typical. Which is so typical of her. And then she comes back and all of a sudden Eleanor has hired someone and the girl is like still asleep upstairs and they just don't know what's happening. So like they have this very weird tension between the two of them where Adelaide like we talked in our first episode about the fact that Eleanor and Beatrice almost fall in like insta-love friend-wise but Adelaide and Beatrice Sorry. That's Maggie's dog. (laughs) My puppy. She's very upset apparently. Hold, please. Ari! Honestly, it's impressive that that's the first time this has happened this whole time. Girl. <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> um, Eleanor and Beatrice fall in love insta-wise, but that's not what happens with... Uh, Adelaide and Beatrice end up having, like, a very tense relationship to the point where Adelaide is testing Beatrice. Yes. Like, and it's weird. Like, the whole thing is just strange. I don't even know what to say about it because it just feels so... As a reader, I was jarred, I guess is what I'm trying to say, by, like, Adelaide's viciously anti-Beatrice reaction when Adelaide was the person who wanted to hire someone to begin with. I get that. I think I... Adelaide, I don't feel like I am Adelaide, but, like, Adelaide very much, I feel like, represents, like, all of those negative parts of yourself. Or not negative, because she's not, like, a negative character, but, like, she wears those feelings openly. She wears, um, and to me, I read it as Adelaide being jealous because Beatrice is sleeping in, and Eleanor is now paying attention to this new person, and this new person is in her space. And I think you pointed out before that Adelaide now has to accommodate this new person being in her space. She has to be quiet so that Eleanor doesn't wake up. And she doesn't know what happened to Eleanor, really. I mean, not Eleanor, I'm sorry, Beatrice. Yeah. Yeah, but she doesn't know what happened to Beatrice, really, at this time. She just kind of uh, knows that, like, there is this girl that Eleanor is taking care of. And then I also think, for me, the way I read it, and I don't know if I was reading into this, because I'm someone who gets very jealous and feels these feelings... I think having Beatrice be there and be this beautiful, fresh, because we hear a lot about Beatrice's beauty, but like this beautiful, fresh, young person maybe could bother Adelaide a little bit. Uh, I don't see that in the text. I Contrary, but like for me, like I just, I don't, at the very least, I don't read Adelaide's potential jealousy as being having anything to do with Eleanor. Oh, well, I just think that, like, Eleanor is making accommodations for Beatrice, maybe, is what I saw. Page 153. So, like, the part where Adelaide is most explicitly thinking about this is at the bottom of page 153. She goes, Eleanor hadn't bothered to mention she was a beauty, save for the small scrape on her forehead, which the poor girl had tried to hide with one of her shiny curls. Everything about her was measured and neat, near perfect. Even the bright blue ribbon tied at the end of her braid was crisp and clean. 
The girl's face was much the same. Not a trace of ill will or disappointment was discernible on it. And oh, what a searching gaze. She's waiting for me to like her. How frustratingly endearing. Well, if she expects my approval today, she'll just have to wait. I don't know. I don't believe it's explicitly stated. Her, um, the stuff about, like, maybe jealousy with Eleanor. I don't, I think for me, and we see this a little bit on 149, 148. So she's mad that she didn't have anything to do with the decision-making of Beatrice. And she's also like mad that Beatrice is asleep on 149. So where is this Beatrice now? Pointing to the ceiling, Eleanor whispered, she's asleep. Asleep, Adelaide explained. Hoping to make enough noise to rouse the girl, she didn't appreciate having to tiptoe around someone she'd never met. I think that it's just the fact that this person was hired without her consent, right? She wasn't a part of the the hiring process. And now she's like sleeping when she should be helping Eleanor. And Eleanor is making accommodations to her, her. And that isn't explicit. It isn't explicitly in the text that Adelaide has a problem that she's making accommodations for her. But I guess reading it, because we we see how much Eleanor is making accommodations for her, I empathized and was like, that would make me mad. Because Eleanor, yeah, Eleanor went to sleep in Adelaide's bed. Yeah. And now she's letting this hired help sleep in. I think that for me, the part that took away those feelings is the fact that the next paragraph Adelaide is suddenly very relieved that Beatrice is there because it means that it's taking Eleanor's very scrutinizing gaze that would be upset at what Adelaide was doing last night off mm-hmm. her. And all of the concern is now going to Beatrice and that's actually ultimately a good thing because we don't want to talk about what Adelaide was up to last night. So like... I still think there's jealousy over Beatrice though, especially like when we see how like young and naive she looks and how beautiful, especially the. Be- because even though um, Adelaide was never necessarily naive, like, she used to be that, like, beautiful young girl. And she feels as though she has lost that. Yeah. No, I think the jealousy is there. I, I just think that for me, the part of it that has to do with Eleanor, I don't see as much. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. I think that there's definitely is that aspect. And there's, like, almost, she almost pities, I think, Beatrice for how naive she is. Because, like, Adelaide knows how cruel the world can be. And she knows that the world is going to break this girl. And there's almost a feeling for me that I get while I'm reading it where Adelaide's just kind of like, well, if she's never experienced hardship before, then, like, here I am, you know? Like, not that Adelaide's going to make her miserable or anything, but, like, there's definitely a tone where, like, she's going to test Beatrice, you know? Like, she's not just going to let her continue sailing by. And of course, this also is because Adelaide doesn't actually know that Beatrice, you know, has had hardship in her life and like her parents have passed away and she grew up in a very, I don't want to say cold because I don't think that Lydia's cold, but like there wasn't she's a, a non traditional at least environment. And there wasn't a kind of affection in her life either. It's just, I, I find that really interesting, especially because as the book moves on, Adelaide and Beatrice become very close. But it's because Adelaide can use her to make money. That doesn't just become- so icky. It is. It doesn't become very clear in, in this section, so we'll dive into that more later. 
But I wanted to point out the beginnings of their relationship because I think it matters a lot more as we'll continue on through the story. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think that, not to get too spoilery, but do you think Adelaide and Beatrice's relationship ever reached the level that Beatrice and Eleanor are at? I think so. I think they have very different relationships, sure. Beatrice ultimately does really trust Adelaide. And I think that ultimately something that we see happens is that she really appreciates the fact that Adelaide, like Eleanor is very um, cautious a little bit about encouraging Beatrice ultimately to use her magic and things like that. And Adelaide protective. Yeah, absolutely. But Adelaide is very much somebody who allows her the space to figure out what her boundaries are. And I think that because of that, they have very different relationships, but I think that, you know, like we were talking about in friendships earlier, like, I think it can be really helpful and you, to have somebody who's like very protective over you and just like wants you to be safe. But I think also like you also need friends out there who will like push you out of your comfort zone, who make you figure out what your boundaries are. Um, I don't know if that necessarily happens in the healthiest way, given the context of Adelaide and Beatrice's like the beginning of their relationship. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything wrong with the fact that like ultimately their relationship does feel real and important and necessary just like Eleanor and Beatrice's does it just takes a very different path to get there okay maybe that's something I think on the second reading that is something I will look more into because I think for me on the first reading it did not feel I don't know Adelaide for so long just seems so indifferent to Beatrice that uh, we'll talk about it later (laughs) But I, I think that's something that listeners should maybe keep in mind while they're reading. Just look into their relationship a little bit more. I think the last thing we have to talk about here, which I say last, but it's probably going to take us a while because a lot happens, is the dumb sucker. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, maybe let's start with 235. So it says, and this is from the grimoire of Eleanor, Eleanor St. Clair. It says oh. the Supper is the most respectful way to summon the dead. Although traditionally held on All Hallows' Eve, the time of year when the veil is thinnest, it can be performed at other times in other seasons should the need arise. The rules of the ritual must be strictly obeyed, lest unintended consequences follow. Reverence and respect are required throughout. So, the context for what's happening here right at the end of this part is that we need to figure out what's happening with Beatrice essentially because up until this point we've only seen hints of the fact that like clearly something magical is going on but she's got no idea what's going on Eleanor has suspicions and now we need to test them and the dumb supper is the way we're figuring out what is actually going on with Beatrice which is why we're calling on Eleanor's mother um because Eleanor's mom is our witchy guru and the dumb supper is interesting because we have to do it it's very ritualized and very exact. At one point, like, they have to walk in backwards because we're talking to the dead. I don't think you're allowed to talk during the actual dumb supper part. I see, Adam, let's see. Yeah, you have to be silent, I think. Yeah, they ate the meal in silence. And this is a real thing people do. We see versions of this in a lot of different 
practices and maybe some versions throughout the world. But on page 240, they start listing all of the rules for the Dawn Supper and what they have to do for it. Uh, the rite has to begin at midnight, which I guess is maybe like a witching thing, a witching hour thing, although that's not technically the real witching hour. They talk about mirrors. It's interesting because this is when we get kind of the prophecies for our three main characters. We learn about Madame St. Clair essentially tells Adelaide that she should start using her name again and like remembering where she came from and and owning her powers. She gives her a, a magic pear to eat from, which could be reminiscent of like the apple of knowledge. Like she has to bite into this delicious pear and it's the best pear she ever tasted. She warns Eleanor about her broken heart. I think that's something that's also worth talking about, though, before we really dive into the prophecies, is the fact that Adelaide... So, like, Eleanor is the only person in this threesome that, like, really ascribes herself at the beginning of this book as being a witch. Yes. We talked about this a little bit before in our first episode, but Adelaide feels really weird about that title. Like, she doesn't really use it. Even when Beatrice asks Eleanor during this chapter, is Adelaide a witch? Eleanor kind of hesitates and she's like, yeah, like I suppose she is. So this isn't just a test almost just for Beatrice. Adelaide also ends up getting kind of thrown into the mix here, you know, because Adelaide also has to come to terms with who she actually is. Like lots of that part of Adelaide's prophecy has to do not just with her relationship with her mother and her past, but also like the magic that she has that mm-hmm. she uses, but I don't want to say not the right way, but not in the same way that Eleanor does. Like she denies a lot of the witchy aspects of it. Which is interesting. Cause I think to some extent, like naming yourself as a witch and even in today's modern context, like non-fictionally, but definitely within the book is like, it's a, it's a place of power, right? If you are a witch in this book, you have the power to change things and also to help the greater world at large. So I think it's important that Adelaide doesn't identify with that in part because I think to a certain extent, she's really, she identifies as someone who's out there to help herself first and yeah. foremost. Yeah. Whereas in this book, the identity of a witch is to help the world at large as we know it from Eleanor and her mother. Yeah. Also, it's just like rejecting all the magic stuff, which I think is interesting because it's a little bit what she was grown up with. Like she's grown up with like things, like bits of witchcraft. Yeah. With her mother uh, being not Romani, I guess, but like playing into certain mythology surrounding that culture. And also I think it's interesting because Adelaide is so cynical and she has had such uh, a dark, gritty past that like she's just not necessarily, even though she believes in magic, she doesn't really believe. She thinks that it is all of a trick, but like she wants to believe. And we see that with her going to to see the dead. Which I think is really interesting because um, Adelaide is ultimately born a witch, right? Because the whole thing about Beatrice is that the ultimate thing here is the first witch not born but made shall renew the work of the mothers. She shall lead her sisters through the fire. So I think it's interesting because, like, Beatrice is the one who was made, right? Like, she crosses the stone, she makes the witch's ladder, and 
kind of like binds her own fate. That's what Madame St. Clair yeah. says. Um, but she's made. And Adelaide is ultimately born a witch. Madame St. Clair says to her explicitly, do not ignore the magic it gave you, right? She is affirming the fact that Adelaide is born into this. And Adelaide still just like can't. It's like a nature versus nurture thing. It's just, I find it really interesting, like, the the differences that we, that we see here between all three of them. Do you think, in part, Adelaide's hesitance to call herself a witch or to accept that part of her, though, is because it kind of relates to her mother and she has such a fraught relationship with her mother? Yeah, and I think also, like, she was familiar with that aspect of the culture, but it's also not like Adelaide's mother ever sat her down like Eleanor's mom did and was like, this is how you do this, right? Like, Adelaide experiences magic very, very differently than Eleanor. And even Beatrice does, because even if Beatrice comes into her magically in life, right, like, she still has an Eleanor to be like, here's the grimoire. This is how you study. This is what we're up to. This is what we do, you know? Like, Adelaide's, it's much different, Yeah, because, like, even if Adelaide's mother was uh, aware of her magic, and I think to some extent, like, they do talk about, like, certain, like, folk traditions that she does, it seems as though her mother also willingly used her gifts as a way just to, like, make profit and maybe didn't believe in them the same way, kind of in a similar way that Adelaide does, or doesn't know necessarily all about her gifts. Yeah, for sure. I'm interested, though, because I can't remember what Eleanor's prophecy was. Uh, I know that we talk about the the broken heart. That's pretty much it. She says, for you, my child, I see blessings from beyond, from all the mothers who have ever lived and all the mothers yet to come. You are as strong and wise as the bright ones who came before you, from Hyder to the queen. Your strength comes from on high, but you needn't be a nun. A hopeless heart cannot heal, or worse yet, it cannot love. Stop shutting herself off. Yeah, exactly. And also, like, a reaffirmation of the fact that, like, she's a really good witch, you know? And she needs to just kind of stop blocking herself off from that just because she's sad. But, like, Beatrice's prophecy, to be fair, is, like, the real prophecy here, right? Because this is where it comes out that not only is she a witch, she's the chosen one. I don't remember how much we talked about on our last episode about fate, but it's just such a big part of this book, and it's something I keep thinking about. Yeah, because we throughout the book, we're, we're talking a lot about Beatrice's fate and like there are fates, but there is also this big aspect of choice. And yes, Beatrice is fated into at least a few different positions, but she chose that. And now yeah. she is the witch that is going to make sure that like women don't have to be born witches, which I wonder if that negates my theory about Sister Piddock in some ways having witchcraft or like, I don't know, maybe you can practice witchcraft without being a witch. Not to get like too deep into the non-written mythology of this book. That's interesting, I think. Because we do see witchcraft performed by many different characters throughout or like parts of witchcraft, even if they're not naming it as witchcraft. But maybe it's more of a metaphor for like, Beatrice maybe representing the larger cultural shift towards like towards the power of womanhood and going back to nature and all of these things that Eleanor as kind of a old school traditional witch represents. Yeah. Versus like the man-made busyness of New York. Like maybe Beatrice represents the blending of that. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. It's just there's a lot lot to think about here, I think. 
I think that the idea of fate here is interesting because Beatrice's fate is simultaneously one that is something she made, but also that the mothers set out for her. So, like, it says explicitly the mothers are always watching. Like, they're here now, come to bring you a message. But, like, there's an implication also that, like, they set things up for her, but it was her doing, you tied these knots. Yeah. That, like, made it happen. So I think there's just an interesting question of fate here because it's, like, simultaneously both something that's laid out and something that you have control over. Yeah, and it's interesting because Beatrice is our most typical, like, hero's journey person. And we do see other characters who are female going on the hero journey. But I feel like it's more at play in this book, like, the fact that she is a girl going on the hero's journey. Yeah, I got Hercules stuck in my head now. Beatrice can go the distance. She can. She can go the distance. But I think typically on the hero's journey, when you have a chosen one, like, there is some sort of fate, even though we see things like choice. And I'm relating it back in my head to Harry Potter because I'm a nerd. (laughs) Harry has some sort of choice for his prophecy, but there is still this prophecy. And, like, ultimately the prophecy, Harry does die and then gets resurrected. Yeah. So the prophecy, like, for one one must die for the other to live does occur and is still fated. Yeah. I mean, I think that talking about fate is just difficult in any context because, like, it's part of the great human question, right? Like, do we have free will or not? And so many books can't make a decision because, like, as humans, we can't make a decision, right? Yeah. So I think that lots of books, like Harry Potter and, like, this book, end up in a kind of middle-in-the-road sort of place where it's, like... Yeah, like, largely these events are set out, but, like, the choices that you've made influenced it along the way. But what I think is interesting about this book, and obviously I don't know because I don't know Amy McKay, so I can't ask her directly, but I feel like I feel like it's deliberate that Beatrice has a choice in part because yeah. she is a woman heroine. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think it's just difficult to talk about when it's, like, the age-old question of humanity, you know? Like, do we have fate? I don't know. I guess I'm looking at it specifically from a literary perspective. Do not own all of the secrets or mysteries of the world, and I don't know enough about science to understand if we're genetically predispositioned to everything we do, but... Oh, God. (laughs) I think that uh, the book is maybe trying to say something about witchcraft as a as a metaphor for womanhood, and I think that yeah, it's different because Beatrice is a woman, but she's going through this hero's journey, in which yes, she has her own fate, but she is choosing it, and that means that like all women from here on out, after Beatrice fulfills her prophecy, will be able to have this sort of power. I think that for me, this is just something I struggle with in literature in general. I think that your literary reading of it is really on point. It's just like a question that whenever I see it in literature, I guess I I guess I end up just feeling kind of like, oh my gosh, why are we talking about this again? None of us know. <laughs> I think it's just because you end up getting so many of the same answers over and over again because no one knows that like for me, it's just... 
It's like Fine. a philosophy class. <laughs> it feels like it. But like also, I think it's partially just because, so my background is as an English literature major and my specialty was in uh, the Romantic era. And that was peak, peak, peak. What is fate? time so like i think for me it's partially just because my my academic background is so steeped in this that like whenever it comes up now i'm just like no i don't want anything to do with this question (laughs) like take 10 steps back from me okay well listeners um maggie (laughs) is broken fate is not good for her but if you have any thoughts about it feel free to email us at the eventual email that i will place in this episode (laughs) that you will hear at the end so what what are you reading right now? Uh, I am reading a book called, sorry, it's right here next to me. That's it's called okay. Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. It just came out. It's a long form journalistic study of three um, essentially like sexual encounters that women have had over, essentially she is a reporter who followed like three women around for eight years to understand like the like specific moments in their sex lives that have completely changed their lives. So one of them um, is about the fact that it's a woman in like a really loveless marriage, uh, but she's financially tied to him. So she can't really get a divorce who starts having an affair. Another woman that gets followed is someone who was taken advantage of by her high school teacher and a couple years later takes him to court. And the third woman is a really successful restaurant owner whose husband likes to watch her fuck other men. So, like, it just follows them for years and years and years talking about the ways in which our sex lives and our sexual identities shape so much of who we are as people wow that's i want to read that when you're done so i'm 100 pages into it right now it's like a third of the way through and it's really really good so far that's exciting that's really cool yeah Um, nonfiction isn't usually my gig either but like this one just spoke to me i love it i love that that's i mean it's Sounds intense. Um, I, I don't know if you heard my woo, but that was because it was journalistic. And then it was like, oh, now we're getting into very serious topics. topics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, need yeah, to yeah. calm down. It's very, it's, it's really intriguing. I like it a lot. What are you reading right now? I'm reading two witchcraft books uh, because that's just where I'm at. Yeah. I finished my Not Your Sidekick, which was a young adult novel that I was reading last episode um, that I highly recommend. And I don't usually like young adult, but I liked that. It took me a while, but eventually I got into it. It's very cute. The, right now I'm reading um, a book that was recommended by Amy McKay, which I think I was also reading last episode too, called Waking the Witch. And it is a cultural memoir almost done by one of my favorite podcasters, Pam Grossman, who runs the Witch Wave podcast. And it's just about, she she is a witch. She's prominent within the witch community, but it's about the witch throughout our like modern culture, like the, the archetype of the witch throughout modern culture, and kind of also about her discovery of witchcraft. So it's a memoir and it does, it's not like an instructional book or anything. I highly recommend it, even if you are not a practitioner because I don't think you have to be to enjoy it, enjoy it. And fun little note, Amy McKay, who wrote this book, uh, wrote a recommendation. Like she is one of the testimonials in the beginning of Pam Grossman's waking the witch book. Oh, cool. 
yeah, there's a fun little crossover there. I'm also reading right now Apocalyptic Witchcraft, which is more of a witchcraft book, and I haven't gotten very far into it. But it's essentially, once climate change happens, how are we going to, and it is much more uh, probably for people who are interested in witchcraft and practicing, but it's not necessarily an instructional book. It's it's very, it's pretty. It's written very prettily and very like poetically, but it's the idea of like, if the apocalypse occurs, what can we do in a spiritual way to mediate that and how to like reclaim power and, um, it's essentially some sort of poetic take on what's going to happen during climate change and what people who are spiritually inclined to witchcraft can do for it. Nice. So, do you have any homework? I did not complete my witch's ladder, which was my homework last episode. I didn't even look into it, but I, <laughs> I did complete something else with the name witch in it, which is called a witch's bottle. It is like a protection sort of spell that we actually see as something that Europeaners used to do to ward off witches, but it's supposed to like ward off evil. And at the moment I am moving into my boyfriend's apartment. So I created one of those to keep our house safe and it's really gross and not at all like a witch's ladder. You like put nails and some people like pee in it. And did you complete your homework about the Romani? No, but I do think I disclaimed last time that it might take me a couple of weeks to get to my homework because I'm just at a really uh, chaotic point in my personal life right now. There's lots of things happening. My dog had surgery. We're in the middle of moving, so I'm a little busy. Um, But I will say, I think that if I was going to assign myself some more homework to look into this week, I'm really interested to see, because the Dumb Supper is one of the few spells we see in this book where it's like really step by step, like this is how you do this. And I think I'd be interested to see just like other takes on that or like whether that's like a historical Dumb Supper spell or if it's like really similar to what people would actually do today. Um, that's less like social justice than my last one, but I, I'm really just like curious about it because it's one of the few things that we see just like really laid out step by step in this book. That's awesome. I like that homework. Um, I didn't think of any homework for myself. I was thinking though, as we were going through this, like maybe seeing if I could try like recreate some of the spells in this book. Um, we see Eleanor do a lot of like little spells with the tea shop and stuff. Yeah. And I have been interested in like just kind of like ritualizing my life a little bit more and infusing awe through ritual. And I think that Eleanor could be a good role model for that. Very good. Sounds awesome. All right. Shall we tell them what our section for next time is? Yes. All right. So our section for next time is going to be, it's a lot shorter. It's 255 to, yeah, 347. Yeah, 255 to 347 is going to be our next section. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Rebel Girls Book Club. Great rest of your week. Yay! Bye! You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh, all the